Hey guys, this is Rachel, um, chair of our Emergency Medical Minute, and I wanted to welcome you to our next podcast, which is with our amazing Swedish Stroke team. Um, today we have two of our advanced practice nurses here with us, um, Michelle and Becky, and I'm going to let them introduce themselves and tell us a little bit about what they do on the team. Well, I'm Michelle Whaley. I'm a clinical nurse specialist um, by training, and I've been with Swedish Medical Center now since 2009, that whole time on the stroke service. And I'm Becky Van Vliet, and I am an advanced practice nurse, also a clinical nurse specialist. Um, and I've been here at Swedish just two years, and before that I worked at a small community hospital um, in the metro area, and I came here specifically to work on the stroke team. Well, we tried to recruit her for a little while, so let's be clear about that. <laughs> <laughs> well, um, can each of you ladies tell me specifically what your role is with our stroke team here at Swedish and what sort of projects and parts of the stroke team that each of you own? Well, um, this is Michelle. I've been, you know, with the program, you know, for so many years now that I've kind of taken some role um, in leadership from a joint commission certification standpoint, but also kind of a quality standpoint. So always looking at ways that we can improve our door-to-treatment times or how nurses speak during rounds. You know, there's always these projects that we're kind of working on to improve quality. So that's kind of the role that I have. I also see patients, you know, half, I kind of describe half my day is spent seeing patients and half the day is spent kind of running the program with, you know, my partners. Okay, Becky, and what about you? What is your role? Well, similar to Michelle, um, my role, well, all of our roles on the team is um, first, I always think, for me, I always think first clinically, seeing patients. Um, we do all share that responsibility, um, but seeing patients, making sure that patients and their families are educated about their stroke and the pathophysiology behind their stroke and their treatment and recovery plans. Um, working with the physicians, the neurologists specifically, to um, accomplish this, working with the nurses on the unit. Um, and then also the quality piece of the Joint Commission um, and research. I go to our research council and we are always working on research projects. Um, the great thing about our team is that there are five APNs, you know, uh, three of the three members of the team are, you know, nurse practitioners, and then Becky and I are clinical nurse specialists, and so we really kind of well-roundedly cover all of the aspects of advanced practice, and so together we kind of divvy up the kind of the roles and responsibilities, and we've all kind of fallen into these natural places, you know, mm -hmm. what your strengths are. Um, I, I think that's one of the best things about the team is that, you know, we all have our own strengths, but together... This, you know, together we make this team really um, shine. Great. Um, so you talk about the different roles that your advanced um, specialists um, hold. What other groups in the hospital do you interact with on a daily basis? What really makes the stroke team successful? Well, in the emergency room, obviously, when a patient is coming in having an acute stroke, we're partnering with the emergency room physicians, nurses, techs, also, the CT techs, the interventional team, if a patient is going to be going for um, interventional therapy. So it's, you know, it starts in the emergency room and our relationship there with those 
physicians, like everybody is on board. We all have the same goals of getting that patient to CAT scan and potentially treated as quickly as possible. So if it weren't for the whole team pulling together, you know, we're only one piece of that team. And so we try to pull all the pieces in, but everybody is on board. And um, it's because of that that we're able to do all the things that we can do here at Swedish. Yeah, we interact a lot with hospitalists, um, rehab physiatrists, bedside nurses, families, um, outreach facilities, um, telemedicine sites, things like that. So you guys are really um, a group that brings a lot of different groups together into a very successful stroke program. Correct. All right, Michelle, do you mind kind of walking us through the history of our stroke program here at Swedish and how we've gotten to such um, great clinical outcomes as well as door-to-needle and door-to-intervention outcomes, um, just being that you've been here the longest and probably know more about our history and what specific interventions have led to these drops of times? Well, our program was first certified as a primary stroke center back in 2004. We were the first one in Colorado and kind of the first to uh, develop kind of this stroke alert process in the emergency room. And that was largely modeled after the cardiac alert program um, and was driven by the ED medical director at the time, Mark Kozlowski. Um, you know, and he kind of talks about, we, we've done a few talks together about kind of the history of the stroke program. And he always kind of says, Gosh, you know, in the beginning, we were just trying to treat people in three hours, let alone get them treated, you know, faster, you know, trying to think about a time limit, getting somebody treated in even under 60 minutes was foreign back in those days. And even at that time, I think treatment rates nationally were hanging around 1.5%. Um, so the idea of getting somebody treated with IV alteplase TPA was was challenging in and of itself, let alone getting those times kind of down. Things were always kind of done in a linear fashion too. So like the patient would come in, they would be seen by the triage nurse, the triage nurse would bring them to a bed, a nurse would see the patient, they would put the patient in a gown, start an IV, do a set of vital signs, and the physician, ED physician, would come in and see the patient. And from there, they might get a CAT scan ordered, and then, you know, that might be 10 minutes before the patient went to CT. There would be probably a 20, 30-minute process of getting the CT read. By then, you know, if there was some question about it being stroke, the neurologist was probably involved much later in the process because labs would be back. We're now looking at 45, 50 minutes in this time frame. And then at that time when the neurologist got involved, now now it's like the time kind of started ticking of when it was mixed, who was mixing the drug, usually in pharmacy, and then it would be hand carried. And, you know, we were lucky even in kind of 2010, 9, 10, 11 to be treating in that 50 to 60 minute time frame. Once we kind of decided that we needed to lean that down, um, it actually... Um, was very easy to determine the things that we needed to fix for the next project. So it all kind of got started in 2013 when um, Dr. Kozlowski attended one of our neuroscience grand rounds and we were talking about the Finnish article. If any of you are familiar with this, it was an article published by kind of a group out of Finland where the entire country, you know, it's just one hospital and one EMS system, but still it's the country's door to needle time is 20 minutes. And you know, we really kind of analyzed what they were doing that was different than what we were doing here. And it was things like pre-mixing alteplase TPA, um, treating in CAT scan, you know, calling ahead. There were all these things that they were doing. And so um, it was Dr. Kozlowski's idea for the CT direct protocol, which we developed 
and implemented in 2013. And that shaved off time, like about eight minutes. And I think that brought us down at that time probably to around the 38-minute time frame. Then the next year it was, okay, let's treat on the CT table. And then it was, let's have the pharmacist deliver uh you know, the, the drug to us in CAT scan instead of going back to the room. And there was a lot of angst about treating in CAT scan and whether that was safe or not. And, um, you know, we had to really work through some barriers and get key stakeholders involved uh, to get people on board. So the CT tech, you could, mm-hmm. you could definitely delay what the CT tech's trying to do if you're treating in CAT scan because they've got 10 patients stacked up that need to be uh, treated or seen. Um, you know, ED nurses nervous about treating in CAT scan because they don't have their peers there to help them. And kind of the fear around IVL to place TPA and, and bleeding rates and things. We had to overcome a lot of those obstacles, but now, gosh, it's a well-oiled machine. And then the mobile mixing project, which Becky will talk about, really kind of ramped those things down for us. Yeah, and I think um, when you talk about getting the, you know, especially the ER team and the CTE mm-hmm. team involved and very comfortable, um, now we come back from stroke alerts and everyone's so excited mm-hmm. about, oh, we got, I, I got a personal best today, you know, with my yeah. door to needle time. And so there's this comfort level because mm-hmm. of probably a lot of the education that you provided to the emergency department. I, I would recommend if anybody's trying to kind of implement some of these protocols is to do a few mock stroke alerts. I kind of looked at it from, we've got a month of time to get people ready. I sent out emails. Um, I tried to recruit key stakeholders to be excited about the project. Um, recruited, I think, the pharmacist that was going to mix and pre-mix and give it to us um, before the CT was really nervous that, you know, we might accidentally give this drug to somebody who didn't have a CAT scan, and we had to allay those fears. But the the week of Go Live, we did three mock stroke alerts. We had physician involvement. They actually came in after hours to do um, these mock alerts with us, which just kind of, I think, showed the team, the investment we all had. Um, but But really, that first mock alert we would have treated the patient in like 12 minutes. And the nurses and techs and team members were all high-fiving each other in the nurse's station. They were so excited, and they were saying, that's my time. I don't care if it was just pretend. It was my time. I get to own that. And then the next one was like 14 minutes. And then the real patient we treated that week, I think, was 12 minutes. So all of those things together kind of generated this excitement that, now that was the identity, I think, in the ER. That was not just level one trauma center, but wow, we really treat people fast. And then we watched our times and we watched our bleeding rates and bleeding rates went down as times went down, probably because there was less dead tissue to bleed. And we started watching outcomes and you know, we had some published data that showed that our outcomes actually improved when we were faster. So not only was it safe, um, it helped people. So That's very cool. Um, Becky, do you want to talk about the sort of most recent intervention that the Swedish stroke team made um, by sort of bringing in pharmacy and doing some pre-mixing um, and at least um, mobile mixing um, of being at the bedside and available to mix in CT scanner? Yeah, absolutely. So um, when I started here in 2015, you know, like I said, I've only been here two years. Most of these things were in place. I definitely considered it a well-oiled machine as well. Um, The one place where we thought we identified an opportunity to shave off even a couple more minutes was um, the fact that 
the um, TPA was still being mixed in the main pharmacy and delivered. So we approached, the idea was that we would ask the pharmacist to be present at the stroke alert with all of the tools needed to, including the drug, of course, needed to mix the TPA right there at the bedside um, and hopefully shave some time off of it that way. So first we had to get you guys on board, which I have to say was, you know, we were kind of nervous about how that was going to go with your staffing constraints and everything just fell in line really well. You guys really stepped up to the plate. Your um, director was very supportive. Um, I think there were some other things going on in the ER that were able to increase your hours of availability for us as well. So we really, it was a perfect timing because we got to benefit off of those staffing changes. Um, but how it's set up now is that um, there's always, let's see, so um, Monday through Friday, basically nine to nine, and sometimes the pharmacists are available prior to, depending on who's on, they'll make themselves available because they enjoy being involved in the process will respond to the stroke alert with the rest of the team, meet us at the launch pad. And um, we've all we've been doing the pre-mixing protocol if the patient has lots of signs that indicate ischemic stroke. So we'll pre-mix so that it's readily available as soon as that non-contrast CT is completed. Um, but this way the pharmacist just stays with us and mixes right there. Um, and as a result of that, we were able to shave a couple more minutes off of our time. We achieved in 2015 and have since replicated um, our single digit door to needle time. So I believe nine minutes is still our record, um, but that was really exciting for the team to get a single digit time um, when we did that. So um, yeah, it's been, it's been really great process. And the other thing that was nice coming out of it is again, not only is really exciting to have a few more minutes shaved off of our times, we've been able to sustain that um, the whole team feels better supported. I think the nurses feel better supported having a pharmacist there because the stroke APNs, we're not, we don't, we're usually leaving around five o'clock, but there's a pharmacist still available until later in the evening. And so that's extended the time where um, we're able to um, treat more quickly with that ex your extra support. Um, and I think the nurses feel a lot more supported as well. There's definitely a level of safety for the, everybody involved, the physicians I know have spoken to that, where they say, I'm literally sitting there watching you mix the drug, and we're all, there are so many double and triple checks that um, everyone feels like we're just doing the right thing. Well, when you're this fast, you do have to have some safety checks in place. You know, initially we did kind of a timeout process where we would stop and, um, you know, just review again the um, exclusion criteria make sure we knew the last known normal time, make sure we had a good blood pressure. We did that for about six to eight months, but really once the process was hardwired, uh, we really didn't need to do that anymore. And and now everyone knows their role, very similar to TNCC. People know their role and they do it. And each, each individual on the team is doing something um, at one time to ensure this is done quickly. And I think for me, the last time I had a 25-minute door-to-needle time, it felt like forever. I mean, there was like, either there was a 10-minute gap, like, what are we doing? You know, we need to be faster. And the whole team felt that way, so. 
Yeah, and just for a little backstory, um, I'm Rachel, and I'm one of the ER pharmacists that works here at Swedish. So as we talk about this most recent intervention, <clears throat> this was definitely something that our department was very involved with. And just working with the stroke team was such a pleasure, um, just there to support us and really take it all the way to the top to get the support that we needed to provide these services. So that was amazing to see and to see the kind of... Um, I guess, reputation that the stroke team has here and how far um, things like requests that they make will go all the way up to the top is very impressive. So I think it just speaks to the work that your team has done um, to create those good relationships. Um, I can also speak to the fact that I think a lot of our ER nurses and techs um, do appreciate another person, another set of hands when it comes to these very quick situations where things are going, they feel safer. Um, when I have new nurses come in to train, and they may come from a facility where they were expected to mix at the bedside, um, particularly if they came from a smaller hospital that maybe didn't have 24-hour pharmacy support in-house. And so when they find out that, no, they can just focus on the things they should be focusing on, like their patient and their vitals and the blood pressure mm -hmm. and the history and things like that, and don't have to worry about this other task of mixing, you know, the medication, then they are incredibly um, grateful and on board with that process. Um, can one of you ladies sort of walk us through in detail the process of a stroke alert coming in, describe the launch pad, describe what direct to CT looks like for folks that may not be familiar, and like when we would pause in the scan um, to maybe think about administering therapy all the way to possibly an IR type intervention? Yeah, absolutely. So um, ideally, so say a patient, it, we'll talk more about outreach later and that we get a lot of patients from outside the metro area, but let's talk about like a local patient, maybe, you know, just coming from around the corner. So ideally we have pre-notification from EMS. That's huge. If we have EMS pre-notification, then we can assemble the entire team ahead of time so that we're literally standing there waiting for the patient. So the launch pad is a physical area in the ER, kind of in the hallway that we've hung a sign and designated to be the launch pad. So instead of rooming the patient, like Michelle talked about earlier, we meet in the hallway and we get, um, so who's there is always a big crowd. There's going to be your stroke neurologist. And I know we'll talk about metrics, but our median time of patient arriving to neurologist at the bedside is zero minutes. So they take great pride in being present when that patient comes in the door. So um, we have our neurologist, we have our stroke advanced practice nurse, we have our ED physician, we have our ED nurse, we have our ED tech, we have our ER pharmacist, we have research people. Registration. Um, of course, registration, that's huge, because registration, we can't do anything until that patient's registered. So registration gets first go at the paperwork and all of those things so that they can get the patient um, in the computer system. I think that's everybody that's there. And then sometimes there's at EMS students who are here learning as well. So we really, we try to have some crowd control, but we really welcome anyone who's is gonna play a role there to learn or to help. So um, we're gonna get report from EMS. They're gonna highlight, and our EMS is, does a great job of giving us the information that we need right away. What was the last known well on that patient? What symptoms are they having? Um, what medications are they on? Those are all the key things that we need to make a decision of whether or not we can um, give IVTPA. So the next thing that we're gonna do is, uh, before we leave the ER, the ER physician is gonna do a quick 
overview, is this patient stable to immediately leave my department? They're um, you know, assessing airway, breathing, and circulation while we're hearing report. Um, also, the, e, the neurologist is going to begin um, a quick neuroassessment. So we'll get the key components of the NIH stroke scale in at that time. Um, sometimes if a patient's having a really big stroke, you can just look at that patient and know, wow, this is a big stroke without even doing a lot of formal assessment. But we definitely, before we leave the ER, we know that patient's ABCs are stable, and we know that um, we have a pretty good idea of whether or not the patient is having a stroke, um, cl just clinically looking at them. So if the patient looks like they're having a big stroke, they have no obvious contraindications to IVTPA, um, or no signs like um, really high blood pressure or um, lethargy, or they've been vomiting, signs that would make us think they might be having a hemorrhage, that's when our neurologist will say to the pharmacist, you know, let's mix um, TPA. We'll often keep that patient on the EMS um, cart, but if we an estimate a weight, sometimes we'll move them over to um, our weigh bed if we really feel like we want to get an accurate weight. kind of depends on which EMS crew we're working with and those things. But um, ideally, the farm, when we leave the ER, we're heading right to CAT scan, and we have a pharmacist mixing our TPA for us. So then we'll go over to CAT scan. Um, the ER doc will be putting in the order for the scan as we walk over. Um, we'll get the patient right on the scanner, um, and then we'll start with the non-contrast head CT, because that's all we need to be sure that that's not a bleed, that's actually an ischemic stroke. So our neurologist is um, going to be the one who's going to read that initial CAT scan in real time on the console. Um, and while this is all going on, then, of course, the nurses are making sure that all the things, if they're going to be giving TPA, that they have all the things that they need. So we have a pump brought with us. They're, you know, the nurse has already put them on the monitor or they're still on the EMS monitor. We'll have a blood pressure. The nurse is going to make sure that they have two IV sites, ideally, so that we can give the drug and any other medicines we might need. Um, so we'll get that CAT scan, and then the neurologist will look at it if they have... Um, if the CAT scan doesn't show any blood or huge signs of obvious massive stroke happening, then we're going to go ahead and administer TPA. So the pharmacist will usually have it ready for us. Um, we'll have been doing our double checks in those couple of minutes while the um, scan is going on. So then we'll go out on into the CT scanner um, and we'll get it hooked up. And it's this is where I think it's such a cool process because um, we have multiple people. Everyone just knows exactly what they're going to do. Um, somebody is pushing the bolus while somebody is priming the drip because um, you want those to go as close as possible to each other. You don't want a gap in between there. So we just have so many hands on that patient. Um, so then we'll get the drug running and we'll be monitoring their blood pressure. And then what we're going to do is we're going to all step back out and we're going to get the rest of the scan. We're going to get the um, CT angiogram and perfusion because we want to look and see do they have a large vessel occlusion. So um, if that's the case, then that patient, we can offer them intra-arterial therapy. So by this point, the interventional radiologist um, has usually joined us. So we have four of those guys who can potentially remove that clot in addition to um, just giving them the TPA. So at that point, they're involved. We're giving them report. The IR, if it looks like it's going to be a go just based on the severity of the stroke, um, the IR staff is getting the room prepped so that we can get that patient right over there. Um, so then what we're going to do is we're going to look at the imaging, look for a clot, look at the perfusion imaging usually um, to see if there's tissue that can be saved. And if there is, then we're immediately going to get that patient over to the angio suite and um, 
go from there to try to get that clot out. So it's really amazing how all of that happens in maybe 15, 20 minutes. It's amazing the number of people and different departments and teams that you just mentioned mm-hmm. in that short description of the many details that go into a stroke alert here at Swedish that just seems so routine to all of mm-hmm. us. Mm-hmm. Um, yes. And one of the things that you brought up was EMS and getting that call ahead from EMS. Mm-hmm. One of the things that I've noticed is that EMS likes to stick around for these they also feel very uh, much like they're owning the patient and they love coming to Swedish because they know that this is the care that that patient's going to receive. They stick around. They want to know the results of the CAT scan and the perfusion. They want to know if they got TPA and how fast it was. They want to know if they ended up having to go to interventional. Was there something that we could have done better to notify you? Was there something better in my report I could have done? Um, So I don't know, Michelle, if you could talk a little bit about your outreach to groups like EMS Mm -hmm. and how we've really gotten the word out about our program here and how we've grown our numbers. All right, so I do a lot of um, number crunching within the program itself and just thinking about the number of patients that we see with ischemic stroke, gosh, you know, it's well above kind of that 850 number plus another 130 or so with TIA, and then we see probably another one to 200 that come in as a, as a stroke mimic. When we try to look at our own treatment rates at Swedish, you have to think about, you know, 55% of our patients or so are coming from another hospital. They've already been ruled in or out for IV alteplase TPA, and they've been treated, and they come to us for consideration of intraarterial treatment. But thinking about just the local EMS population that's brought to Swedish or the people that drive themselves to the hospital and are seen that their very first encounter is in our ER, I ran the numbers just looking at it last year, and at one point it was somewhere around, like, 350 patients that came in for consideration of, of IVTPA alteplase. And of that, probably 80, 85 were ischemic stroke. We treated about 119 patients with alteplase. Some were inpatients. These numbers all get convoluted, right, when you start talking about them. But basically, it equals about 20% treatment rate at Swedish for patients brought to us. Um, you know, our goal, I, I want to say nationally, you know, years ago, I mentioned earlier about 1.5% were treated. I think now in Colorado, the number is somewhere around 7%. Um, at, with comprehensive stroke centers, we should be in that 20% range. And I, I like to think about, you know, the number of patients we help with outreach too. You know, we also treated last year, you know, over 200 patients with alteplase drip and ship. So when you look at all of those numbers together, treatment rates are hovering around altogether between 30 and 40% when you add in intraarterial treatment and all the things that we're doing for people. So high treatment rates, um, I think, very something I'm very proud of. So Michelle, can you walk us through exactly... Um, the timeline and drop that we've seen in our um, door-to-needle treatment times and exactly which intervention matched up with which decrease and what is the current state of our program? Sure. So when we first kind of got started on this CT direct protocol kind of journey, uh, we were hanging around the 49-minute median door-to-needle time. Um, In 2014, we dropped that to 32 minutes. 
2015 down, you know, to 24 minutes. Uh, we just even last year hanging around that 23, 24 minute time frame. This year, what I'm really excited about at the end of February, I ran our numbers. You know, those are always kind of small ends, so you expect the number to be a little bit higher. Um, but for that month, those two months, we treated 16 patients with a median time of 17 minutes. And then we wanted to look at, okay, so what's the, this is kind of the newest data number to look at. It's called the P90, or the percentage treated, or the, what is your 90th percentile? So it's great that your median is 17 minutes, so you're treating half your people in 17 minutes, but what about the other half, and where do they come in? You, know, you don't want to be at the higher end of that number. So now the number that probably we'll be looking at even closer is this 90th percentile, and so I looked at that just of those two months, and we were, you know, 90% of our patients were treated in 30 minutes. So again, that's, that's pretty exciting, and all of those cases were under 45 minutes. I think even under 40 minutes. So now we've got this, not only this well-oiled machine, we actually brought in a couple of new neurologists and you, your expectation would be that their times would be a little longer, but that's not the case. Where they're training, they're doing it just as fast. I think our numbers are the fastest that I know of, that's published at least. Um, I'm sure there are other hospitals fast on our heels, but isn't that what we all want? We want, all, we want to raise the bar for everyone and for everyone to catch up because that's just better for patients. Yeah, absolutely. It's amazing. When I saw that 17-minute um, um, door to needle time for this year, it was very motivating because when you get this low in door to needle times, it I mean, even seconds can count. So cutting off 30 seconds or a minute becomes very significant, I feel like, in, amongst our team. Gosh, just getting the registrar on board, this was a couple of years ago, they felt like a four-minute door to registration time was appropriate until I said, okay, but every 10 minutes that goes by in stroke, the chance of the next outcome goes down. And that was a light bulb moment for their director. It was like, oh gosh, we really can contribute here. And now they're registering patients in under a minute and we're getting to CT at around the four minute mark. And that's, you know, that's how you get to nine minutes is on the CT table at four minutes from arrival. Absolutely. Sometimes I watch um, the registration um, person working and I think they have the most high pressure job in the whole situation because we're all standing there staring at them because we can't really order any tests or put any information in and they can't go to CT until they're registered. Well, they were afraid of us in the beginning. They were afraid <laughs> to talk to us because they didn't want to interrupt. And um, we had to, even the physicians have said, no, you are the most important person right here, right mm -hmm. now, because without you, we cannot go to CAT scan. And without that CAT scan, we cannot treat this person. And so I think feeling that from the team, we stop everything to get the name and the birthday. Absolutely. Uh, I think, again, it's just a testament to the outreach that your team has done and really brought all these different groups in to make this successful. Um, you talked about door to needle time as in Alta Place, but can you also talk about door to intervention time? So how quickly are these patients getting to IA that one may not be a TPA candidate or two could be a candidate for further intervention that could improve their outcome? Well, we always had a really quick response to IA. We didn't start tracking, gosh, until... Um, 2014, but we were part of the ESCAPE trial, and the ESCAPE trial was one of the interventional trials where, you know, we really were looking at, you know, those outcomes to prove that IA 
is beneficial. And of course, uh, those of you that are in the field of stroke know that there were five trials that all came out at one time, all showing that this treatment was appropriate. But what was important about ESCAPE was you had to be fast. You had to have door to groin puncture times in 60 minutes or less to even be considered in the study. So we were doing all these great things with uh, you know, our treatment times for IV place. So the IR team just kind of piggybacked on that. So we had these great processes at the launch pad, and then the IR team just had to jump in and be present. And so for them, it was being present in the room during the scans, having the the nurse, uh, the charge nurse for the IR team, or, you know, the the manager would, would come there, or the, the nurse practitioner for the IR team would be there to help kind of facilitate. And they, if it looked like it was a go, they were clearing tables before we were even off the CT scanner. And then our plan was to go directly from CT over to IR. We watched our times drop, um, just door to groin puncture times over the last couple of years. Right now, our current, current um, door to groin puncture time is that 32 minute time frame last year we were 35 minutes now that's not always fair because a lot of our patients come from another facility and we get you know an hour notice so the team can really be ready but those local patients we're treating those local patients as fast i think our median time for them is somewhere around 15 minutes but again those are opportunities for us to improve the most important metric though in ia treatment is door to recanalization time Um, that's what's really important because it's getting the artery open. So that has to do with skill of surgeons and um, you know, skill of the team that's working with that patient. Um, I think you know, last year we were in that 72 minute time frame, which again is just really spectacular. Yeah, that is truly amazing. Um, I think the last part that we, we want to chat briefly about, just because it's not what everyone really thinks of, we all think of the patient that arrives to the ER on the launch pad, whether that's from the scene or a transfer, um, but talk to me about our outreach and what we're doing with our um, telemedicine consults. And so what we're providing to maybe some of these places that don't have a neurologist on staff, but do have the ability to treat the patient. Yeah, so last year we had 136 different outside facilities transfer patients to us. Um, Of those, 50 sites are in our telemedicine program, which means they have an actual camera at their site that our neurologist can beam into. Um, Geographically, those sites, a lot of them are in Colorado, but um, even within Denver itself. um, But we've gotten patients from as far north as almost to the Canadian border in Montana, as far south as, um, I guess, probably Taos in New Mexico, down in New Mexico. That's probably our westernmost site. And then east, we go into the middle of Kansas. So it's a huge geographic area that we're covering. And how this works is that we have this network set up where um, physicians in these rural areas are able to call and get an immediate consult for um, from our Blue Sky Neurology team. So... Um, the success of that program, though, definitely is on their shoulders. I mean, they make themselves available 24-7. Their response times are equally, I mean, they're here, you know, in person 24-7 at Swedish. Um, but the physician that's on telemedicine, I think they actually have two now covering telemedicine mm-hmm. um, because it's such high volume. Um, they're, you know, on that camera as quickly as they can be um, seeing those patients. So it's really great because it gives these rural communities immediate access to a board-certified neurologist who's treating patients with IVTPA 
day in and day out. So that's what makes them safe and makes them so good is because they do it all the time. So these tiny communities have access to that. Um, and then we have, uh, so it's with telemedicine cameras, you know, the neurologist um, can physically see the patient. They can zoom in on the patient's pupils. They can look at vitals. They can speak and interact with everybody in the room. So it's um, really a really cool virtual network. And then um, if those patients are an IV TPA candidate, then they can receive the TPA there. They can sometimes stay at that facility if they have the capabilities to care for that patient. Oftentimes they don't, so then they'll get, uh, we'll get our access team involved and um, get that patient brought over to Swedish, often by helicopter, um, for post-TPA care, but then also for consideration of intra-arterial therapy as well. Um, can you speak to some of the numbers that we're being consulted on on a, I don't know, daily, monthly, annual basis? Oh my gosh, I, it's got to be at least 20 calls a day that, that these neurologists are getting calls wow. from. Oh, yeah. And I would say on average, they're transferring in maybe three a day, three to four, it could be more, depending on the day, you know, some days we, we might have eight stroke alerts. Right. And and of those two are local and maybe the rest are transferred in. You know, it really just depends on the day, but pretty high volume. The cool thing about telemedicine is that it keeps people in their home community because the neurologist can lay eyes on that patient, really look at them. They can see their images and they can feel comfortable saying, yes, you can stay where you're at. Or for the sickest patients that really need to transfer, need this expert level of care, they can transfer in. And with that, we have a dedicated flight team. Um, with Air Life, they have, you know, dedicated stroke team, um, high level of education regarding stroke, and I think really the best flight team that's out there. Wow. So even getting further into EMS to now Air Life involvement, because a lot of these patients probably actually come by air when you're coming from as far places as Kansas or Montana and things mm-hmm. like that. We, we do collaborate with all of the regional flight teams. We do provide a lot of education for those teams. Um, you know, our goal is to, to really provide that cohesive level of care from the time they leave that outreach facility to the time they arrive to Swedish, that that standard of care is provided no matter where they're at. Well, I think it's just amazing um, the evolution of our stroke program here at Swedish, and I think it's definitely a testament to your guys' team's hard work and outreach. And just want to thank both of you for chatting with us today, and we'll make sure to put some contact information up with this post so that if you have any specific questions on how your hospital, your ER, your stroke team, um, your EMS team could be making some of these interventions that lead to better patient outcomes, um, you certainly will have access to that information. So thank you. Thank you. Thank you.